Welcome to the Aristocrat Pub in Indianapolis, where a live audience has gathered for episode five of Lou Harry Gets Real. It's a podcast about arts, culture, puns, plays, and a stumbling forward through life. On Lou's guest list this evening, Brian Payne, president and CEO of Central Indiana Community Foundation, one of the leading Midwest philanthropic Yes! <laughs> organizations and also the brains behind the Indianapolis Culture Trail. Also on the guest list, singer-songwriter Megan Christine Martin, absolutely no relation to me, <laughs> who is on the brink of releasing a new EP. Ladies and gentlemen, hold your applause. <laughs> or not, I'm Daniel Martin from Active Fool Improv Crew, your co-host for this evening, now. I'd like you to please welcome a guy who has talked at length with half of the original cast of A Streetcar Named Desire, spent three days working for ESPN on the PGA Seniors Tour recording golf balls landing on a fairway, and couldn't get a word in edgewise when he interviewed Quentin Tarantino. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Lou Harry. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel, and good evening, and welcome to the podcast, live folks and those folks listening at home in cars or at the gym or wherever. Uh, a little later, we'll be chatting with, with Brian Payne about something he's devoted much of his career to, uh, which is shaping cities into better places for the people who live and work there. While it's not on my resume, I've actually designed cities. Of course, those were for Matchbox and Hot Wheel cars. <laughs> And they were terribly impractical. I have yet to see a good city design in the real world that incorporates a road with a loop-the-loop. -loop. Now, knowing that Brian would be on the show, I got to thinking about big plans that go right and big plans that go wrong. And how optimism can turn into what were they thinking. One example. I grew up in Wildwood, New Jersey, a five-mile-long beach in Boardwalk Island, that catered to tourists. When a small mall opened offshore, city geniuses decided that the island was losing customers because it didn't have one of those malls. So in their wisdom, they pushed through a plan to turn the business stretch of our downtown's primary shopping district into a pedestrian mall. That way, when someone asked, where's the mall, they would be guided downtown, right? Wrong. Without cars driving along that stretch of downtown and without parking support, tourists not only didn't shop downtown, they didn't even know we had a downtown. Businesses closed, and the district is still trying to recover long after that street has been reopened. Now, Wildwood wasn't alone. On a bigger scale, a similar thing happened in Buffalo and in Poughkeepsie and elsewhere. Now, on the business side, consider the optimism that went into the building of the world of Sid and Marty Croft Amusement Park in Atlanta. Some of you are of my generation or close to it. You remember Sid and Marty Croft, the creators of HR Puffin Stuff, Lidsville, The Bugaloos, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and all of those shows that were a little trippy on Saturday morning. <laughs> so they opened an amusement park in Atlanta featuring those characters. Perhaps you didn't know there was a Sid and Marty Croft amusement park. Well, it opened in 1976. And it closed in 1976. <laughs> the site is now, by the way, home to CNN headquarters in Atlanta. Now, none of those 
quite compare to what happened in Centralia, Pennsylvania, a town I'm fascinated with but have yet to visit. In case you've never heard of it, here's the story roughly. It seems that residents for a long time were illegally dumping trash in abandoned strip mines. Now, so the city, in its wisdom, decided to create a single centralized landfill. So far, so good. And they decided to set the trash in the coal mines on fire. Maybe you can see the problem. When they tried to put it out, in 1962, they couldn't. So the underground fires continued to burn. The state started paying closer attention nearly 20 years later in 1981 when a kid fell into a sinkhole that was four feet wide and 150 feet deep. The kid survived, held onto a branch, was saved. But you think that ghost towns only exist in the West? In 1983, Congress allocated $42 million to relocate all of the residents of Centralia, Pennsylvania. By 1992, every building in Centralia was condemned, and it's now pretty much just a surreal field with paved streets. Now, I think most of us see what has happened when highways create impossible to cross barriers in cities. We've seen when public transit and lack thereof and what that can do to neighborhoods. We've seen the shells of defunct big box buildings create blights, blighted acres of real estate. When a city or a town or even an amusement park tries to wisely plan for the future, my head spins thinking about all of the variables. Technological, political, sociological, engineering and more. I'm looking forward to talking to Brian um, about the challenges of shaping cities, including his work on the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, which has gotten worldwide attention uh, for Indianapolis and is being copied elsewhere. We'll get to him in a few minutes. Before I do, though, I want to welcome Daniel Martin, who is not only the force behind... <laughs> we do not have an applause sign here. Uh, Daniel's not only the force behind Actifu Improv Crew, an amazingly funny group of men um, who perform in Indianapolis and are stretched, bringing their talents to other cities coming up very soon. Um, He's also a very fine actor who has appeared in such shows as To Kill a Mockingbird and A Raisin in the Sun at the Indiana Repertory Theater. Uh, he and I co-hosted a Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS benefit with the cast members from The Lion King just a few months ago, and I got to witness firsthand his just wonderful, spontaneous playfulness. So please welcome Daniel Martin Thank to the crew. You. Thanks for having me, Lou. Appreciate oh, it. Always a pleasure. I'm, I'm a... Um, as I said, a Jersey resident. I didn't come here until about the mid-90s. You, you grew up in Indianapolis. I grew right? up in Indianapolis. I was born in uh, Illinois, and uh, my father got a, uh, a minister job here in town, and uh, been here since like 87. So I, I'm a Colts fan. I'm a Hoosier. All right. Um, what changes have you seen in the, you've then seen the Colts play in multiple venues, and what, uh, what changes have you seen that you think have been, been positive here, and anything on the negative side? Oh, man, here in the city? Positive, positive. Um, no, there's been a lot of uh, it's been a lot of uh, positive things going on in the city. Uh, me growing up, there wasn't uh, for me it wasn't a lot to do. Uh, I, I um, typically got into trouble a lot. Not not necessarily like with the law, but with my mouth. I had a quick mouth. <laughs> 
Uh-huh. You know, I, 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 I thought faster than my mouth should work. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's where the improv comes from. Mm. I was that kid. My father asked me to feed the dog, and I'll be like, well, I got to feed that son of a bitch. Let me no. explain. <laughs> the dog's a guy, and his mother's a female. So I was that guy, you know. Got into a bunch of trouble, and I found acting. And from there, uh, now the opportunities for uh, acting and stuff has uh, blossomed more then mm-hmm. or now than right. it was back then. Well, back then downtown. I mean, we moved here just when the Circle Center Center Mall mm-hmm. was, was just opening, built. and everyone kept saying, "Oh, downtown's so different than it was just a couple of years ago." Did you notice that as a kid? Were you aware that like downtown? Was it a place you would go? It wasn't. It As wasn't. a kid, it wasn't at first until Circle Center mm-hmm. Mall was built. And then that was the place to hang out. They had the uh, movie theaters there. They had Johnny Rockets. Mm-hmm. They had the arcades. Uh, for us, it used to be uh, Lafayette Square. And then yeah. uh, after uh, Circle Center went up, that mall became desolate, and no one goes there anymore now. So. Pretty much a shell at yeah, this point. Yeah, it is. But yeah, figuring out what to do with those those big locations is a challenge. Now you also spent a fair amount of time performing in Atlanta. Is I did. Right? I was two two years there in Atlanta performing uh, improv and actually in uh, theater as well. What what do you see as fundamental differences between a city like Atlanta and Indianapolis? Uh, Atlanta, there is. You hear there's more opportunities to perform. You hear that uh, that's the new Hollywood and stuff. Um, but in reality. All they're doing is hiring actors from coming from other states mm-hmm. and performing there. They're not hiring their own people. Right. They're putting them as uh, the, uh, what are they called? The sidekick specials, the, what are they called? The trees and stuff, you know what I mean? So as far as there, they say it's big opportunities there, but it's a little harder. Indianapolis, we're growing. It's smaller smaller town so everyone especially in the uh acting world they know each other and stuff so uh there seems to be sometimes a i know when we moved here and it's true in other cities we came from the philadelphia area it seems like often there's a split between two kinds of people there are the people who say that if something is created in that town whether that's indianapolis cincinnati was you know madison wherever well it can't be any good if it's local and then there are other people who say well we have to say everything's great because it's local. You know, you have sort of the booster and you have the cynic on both sides, but I hope we're getting away from that, that we're comfortable with it can be, something can be okay. Or uh, not everything's great, but there are wonderful things happening. I love the fact that people are starting, you know, their own stuff and getting out there trying stuff, uh, putting their art out there for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff does fail but they're trying and that's that's all that's all we can ask for well think of things that that aren't quite successful um one of the things we like to do is have a little pun competition in our uh, on our facebook page and we asked various folks to come up with to name a tour make a tourist attraction or a city or location to kind of ruin it by adding or changing a word in its name so we'd like to share some of those that came back to us. One, of course, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Lame. That would be problematic. And your groans will tell, you, tell us how we're working here. The Sistine going on 17 Chapel. Sounds <laughs> like that. We know what ruined the Star Wars series, so why not Mount Kilimanjaro? <laughs> Viagra Falls started out as just a stream. <laughs> 
Uh, Yellow Snow National Park. That's one you want to be careful where you're stepping. The Anne Frank House of Pancakes. <laughs> no, <that we've, laughs> oh, okay, there are people just shaking too their heads. Too, too soon. Too <laughs> soon. Machu Picchu is good. I think that would be Machu interesting. I think that would be. Uh, Mount Tush. Tush no, I screwed that up. I'll try that again. Uh, the other side of Mount Rushmore, which is Mount Tushmore. <laughs> the Golden Girls Gate Bridge. Of course. Uh, the 1974 AMC Kremlin. Dead silence from that one. That's all right. Slow reaction there. That's all right. Uh, the colostomy of Rhodes. That's always good. The statue of puberty. We like that. I like the what you're talking about Willis Tower. That's always would be appealing. The Seattle Space Noodle. <laughs> always good. The LinkedIn Memorial. The memorial that nobody go bothers going to until they need a job. That's... <laughs> the Ripley's Believe It or Whatever Museum. Sure. Um, oh, the, that's right next to the Madame Tussauds Facts Museum. Those old jokes. The Venice Bridge of Size Matters. <laughs> that's a terrible one to leave on, but we're going to leave on that one anyway. <laughs> to get things rolling uh, with our, our main interview guest uh, this evening or this morning, depending on when you're listening. Um, I want to welcome up Brian Payne. Brian is president of the Central Indiana Community Foundation and the Indianapolis Foundation. That means he oversees an organization. We'll get an updated number, but the latest I had was about $811 million in total assets. A leading grant-making organization doling out about $50 million a year. Uh, for the record, neither I nor the show get any of that. So just so you know, he's here because we want to talk to him. Um, what are those grants? You're the only one, by the way. <laughs> what do those grants and initiatives do? Uh, ideally, they make Central Indiana a better place to live. Among his big projects, he was the force behind the creation of the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, which, if you're not from the from Indy, we'll tell you a little bit more about that. That's a 63 million dollar project. Eight miles of bicycle and pedestrian path that circles downtown and extends into Fountain, the Fountain Square neighborhood. Uh, on the more day-to-day, -day, he's also helped turn many citizens into philanthropists. I'm going to talk about that a little bit first. Okay. Um, welcome, Brian. Welcome, Brian. Welcome, Brian. Thank uh, you. Now, I'm going to step back just as let's say that our friend Daniel here earned a major spot on TV with his improv group. Suddenly, he's getting movie deals. He's got about a million two that he's interested in turning into filling, to doing good with. Yes. I want to play meet out with that, him. Play out that conversation. Uh, Daniel. Yes, sir. You're killing it out there. Thanks for being <laughs> well, such a I great didn't. ambassador for Indianapolis. Well, you know, I try, Brian. I try. And also, uh, thanks for uh, caring about your hometown and not just taking that money to New York City or L.A. Um, because... Um, it's awesome that you're still devoted to your hometown. I appreciate that. Uh, the Hoosiers, they get me here, Brian. Yeah, all right. I'm me pointing too. to my heart, America. So, so you could open up, a, you know, you could open up a fund, uh, a private foundation, but at 1.2 or 10.2 or 50.2. It's 1.2. Let's yeah. not get it. I'm not doing that but, well, Brian. Let's no. not get it. But, 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 but I, I've seen you. I think it could be 50.2 someday. Oh, but, well, but, thank you. But my main point on that is not just to flatter you, uh, <laughs> but it's um, that the best, we think the best thing that you could do is, is that we could help you by if you could create a fund 
with the Central Indiana Community Foundation. It's called the Donor Advice Fund. And our job is to take all of our knowledge of the community, all of our resources, all of our network, all of our grants officers, all of our community leadership connections, and put that to work for your dreams. It's about your dreams. So if you had your own private foundation, maybe maybe you could um, hire a person, probably not at 1.2, it wouldn't be a, a, good, a good investment to even hire a staff person. But you actually would have 45 staff people working part-time for you, helping you figure out what you want to do in Indianapolis and throughout the world. And so I would love to talk to you about uh, maybe opening up a fund. Again, our job would be to bring all of our knowledge, resources, connections, <clears throat> vision to your dream of what you want to do with your philanthropy. I almost gave you the money that's in my pocket right now. That, that was incredible. <laughs> I had you at 50.2, <laughs> didn't I? Yes. You had me at 50.2. <laughs> How do you help somebody figure out what is important to them? We actually, um, first of all, you know, some people know what's important to them. But actually, surprisingly, a lot of people, especially people who are entrepreneurs or people who have devoted their life to being a CEO and you know, working 80 hours a week. And you could say it, or people who aren't too bright. No, 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 it's not that. Except people who are so busy making money, mm -hmm. when they finally get to the point where they're starting to think about how to give it away, they maybe haven't thought about how to give it away. And so we actually have a, a lot of tools, but we basically, one of the things we do is we take them through a, uh, an issues and value uh, conversation where we have like words of all these different value sets. For instance... So uh, one could be uh, like actually you know it's, uh, one mine's mine's fairness. My I've done this myself many times. My number one value is fairness. Oh. My number two is is creativity, and three is innovation. I mean I very much care about living in a creative city. I, I love the act of creativity and innovation, but but number one I've learned is fairness or justice. Mm. Actually I say fairness, but. I've looked it up. Fairness and justice are very close cousins. <laughs> but um, so we, we go through that. We, we kind of help them look, feel about what, what are their values? What, are they, what do they care most about? One of the, uh, and Rob McPherson, who is our, our colleague at CICF, who uh, is our vice president of development strategy, he's an expert at this and working with families. But he always, he always frames it. When you're reading the newspaper or watching TV news or reading your favorite blog or whatever, what is it that really pisses you off and that's really getting you emotionally connected you know then you can really kind of help find out what your values are so values issues you know um, I mean certainly one of the things that I care deeply about are our connectivity um, uh, and you know which sometimes it's you know gets uh, gets related through you know bicycle and pedestrian connectivity and trails but but really connectivity of all kinds social connectivity I mean I think what you're doing here Lou is is an incredibly important thing. And when I first moved here 25 years ago from California, we didn't have opportunities like this. I, in my first three or four years, we talked a lot about where is the intellectual center? Where are those salons? Where are those conversations happening? Right here in this room and, with all uh, these people, amen. ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Thank you for being our intellectual center, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. And I'm looking at this group, and, and I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know everyone here. I, don't, I know about half the people, but this is a very, very highly intelligent group we have here tonight. Well, they're going to be quizzed later. Okay, so that's okay. I'm here to balance things out. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I pulled an, an old bio originally when I was looking for, you know, stuff for your introduction uh, that said that um, 
CICF handled mm. 350 million. Then I checked the date on it, and I realized now it's 811 million. Well, it was 811 million uh, in November. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, okay. Uh oh. All right. December well, it wasn't so good. But. All right. Uh-oh. Close. <laughs> Close. But what? It's still a big leap. What changed? You know, how do you double that money that's out? Yeah. Um, so. Um, I, I actually owe a huge debt of gratitude. So the, so the Central Indiana Community Foundation actually has three foundations working together. It's the Indianapolis Foundation representing Marion County. It's the newly named change. It used to be the Legacy Fund of Hamilton County. Now it's called the Hamilton County Community Foundation. Okay. And then it's CICF. So all three, or, all three of those foundations work together um, under kind of a CICF operating agreement. But we actually have three different foundations representing those two counties. And um, my predecessor, Ken Gladish, he was the one who went through a lot of pain to get the Indianapolis Foundation to actually step closer. This, is in, this was in, Ken was there from 93 to 97. And he was preparing the Indianapolis Foundation for the 21st century because the Indianapolis Foundation up until that time was still kind of lost in the 19, in 1916 when it was created. Like our transportation system. Yes, thank you. And, uh, and so Ken did a lot of the heavy lifting, but we finally became, and when I was hired, um, we were, my job was to make, actually make the, this partnership work, but also these three foundations to work as it was really fraying along the edges early in the game. And, um, but it was also to execute on how to really be an innovative community foundation and for the longest time, the Indianapolis Foundation would not do these donor-advised funds. They would have told Daniel, Daniel, you know, I know you could do a private foundation, but why don't you just give all the money to us, and our board will spend it very wisely, much wiser than you could, by the way. Um, I mean, and your was, reaction to that, <laughs> Daniel, would have been? Shh. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> So the fact is, actually, giving a little bit of that 1.2 to the unrestricted fund endowment mm. for Indianapolis would be a good idea, mm-hmm. eventually. But, um, but anyway, but we started to create these donor advice funds. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the, actually, that was the present of community foundations, but we weren't in the present until the mid-90s. Okay. And that was the future. Actually, those are becoming kind of a commodity now, and we actually think that the future is, still, that's still an important piece, having those donor advice funds that we support lots of donors with, but also a vision about how to, how the community foundation can make really important change in the community, how, how can it be a community leadership organization, and then bring those donors into that work when they want to be in that work. That's the future, I believe. We've, we're actually a leader nationally on that. We've got a kind of, I think the cultural trail gave us a kind of a five-year head start on every other foundation. And now Lilly Endowment's doing this big initiative right. statewide, uh, putting in, gosh, uh, over $100 million dollars um, I think it's about $100 million. We're, we might get 12 to 15 of that. Um, but that's all about community leadership. So Lily Endowment thinks that's the future. We think that's the future. And other community foundations around the country are starting to learn that that's the future. Well, part of it has to do, part of the Lily money that's out there now is talking about cultural institutions and growing the sort of cultural kind Well, of you know, that, that was another, that's another, that's another, that's another initiative, which I, I, I got to tell you, Lou, so we, we, we have a couple of those uh, small, we're a partner on two um, important but uh, small um, mm-hmm. Lily, what well, I'd say project. Or, mm-hmm. I, I, it always seemed to me like that was a big kind of innovation idea right. competition. Mm-hmm. 
And we were partnered on two of those winners, which I'm thrilled about. But there are others that I'm even more thrilled about than the ones that, I'm, that we're partnering on. One is to create uh, a, a wonderful, beautiful outdoor amphitheater for Indy Shakespeare Festival in Riverside Park yeah. and also fix the Taggart Memorial and to create an incredible space actually in a neighborhood that uh, has so much potential but is a, you know, is a mostly African-American neighborhood that has been ignored for too long. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's going to be a huge, a huge opportunity. But when Lily announced all of those, that was one of the most inspiring hours I've spent in 25 years because I came away thinking two years from now, this is going to be an even significantly more impressive and inspiring city than we are now. How oh. much do you have to fight the idea? And I just had read and responded to an article in the Chicago Reader about this where they were sort of blasting the salaries of the heads of arts organizations. And I think that feeds into the idea of that, that I think many politicians have and many people in the community seem to have that the arts, arts and culture life, is, that it's a hobby. That it's not yeah. something to be taken as seriously mm -hmm. as businesses in the city. That for, a, for an uh, executive, somebody at the top of a, an executive director of an arts organization shouldn't be making a salary even close to what you know somebody who heads a business makes. Well, they they still don't. Right. I, I don't know who would argue that they are, but uh, but no, I, I get you what you're, what you're talking about. You know, it's um, it's it's important. I mean, running an arts organization in America is an incredibly hard job. I mean, I have a very complicated job right now, but I always say um, you know giving money away is complicated but it's not stressful. Mm. Raising money every week to make payroll, that's not complicated, but that's extremely stressful. And for and, some background, Brian was the managing director of the Indiana Repertory Theater, uh, correct? And before that ran Shakespeare, Santa Cruz, and, and other, right, so my, comes at this through the arts. Yeah, so my whole career until I, my first job outside the arts really was uh, at the Central Indiana Community Foundation. And, and uh, actually the cultural trail kind of got me back into the world of arts and culture uh, which was a huge uh, opportunity and thrill for me. But so it's an incredibly hard job and it takes a tremendous number of skills. And if you're gonna have a successful arts organization, you've gotta have really great talent and leadership. And, you got, and, and those people, you know, to, to expect that they're, just because they love the arts, are always gonna make huge life sacrifices to do that. Tremendous, and tremendous number of people do that. But to expect that is just not fair, it's not just. And, um, you know, I, I actually think uh, that this is one of my favorite sayings in American uh, business and culture, and it comes from the Americans for the Arts, which is a national kind of trade association for arts uh, in the United States. And it's like, you know who the biggest donor of the arts in America is? A Christmas Carol and Nutcracker? You no. Know, <laughs> and I'm looking at some of them here. It's the artists themselves. It's the individual artists of America that subsidize the arts in America mm. because they do it, this incredible amount of work, for such little money overall. Mm. Now, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's... Related. Now, that's related. Now, I got to tell you, um, one, of my big, one of my breakthrough moments in my early career was uh, getting a job right out of grad school at the La Jolla Playhouse. And I went back to the La Jolla Playhouse a year ago because... Um, a woman named Faith Prince, who is a Tony Award-winning actress, four times nominated for a Tony Award, 
uh, been in TV and movies, uh, but mostly as a Broadway star. And my wife, Gail, who's, uh, who's studying acting full-time in New York City, and Faith have become really good friends. So we went to see Faith star in a play at the La Jolla Playhouse. Now, I worked at the La Jolla Playhouse right out of grad school. And when I found out what Faith Prince was making at the La Jolla, La Jolla Playhouse, I wanted to burn the theater <laughs> down. Because she was making um, roughly about $900 a week and living in housing that she thought was way below what any experienced professional Four-time Tony nominee. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, oh, wow. Faith Prince should have been making at least $2,500 a week at the La Jolla Playhouse. Mm-hmm. La Jolla Playhouse is, a, is, a, is way wealthier than the IRT. You know, pe- wealthy people live in La Jolla. There, I mean, in fact, no one who's not wealthy lives in La Jolla. <laughs> when, I, when I used to say I grew up in San Diego, and, and people would say, oh my gosh, San Diego, and, I, used to, and I, I still have to say this. No, but you don't understand. I grew up 15 miles south mm-hmm. and $5 million inland from La Jolla, okay? <laughs> Have you heard of the, this little Mexican border issue that they have? I'm seven miles north of that, okay? That's where I grew up. So um, anyway, but, but, but anyway, so I do think, I mean, the, the artistic director of the La Jolla Playhouse, I don't know exactly what he makes. I bet he makes 500000 a year. And for him then to pay Faith Prince 900 a week, he ought to be making 375000 and she ought to be making 2500 And that is a problem in America. Finding that balance. Yep. Um, let's talk about the roots of the cultural trail. Um, this is a thing that did not exist until it existed in your mind. What, what got you thinking that, first of all, describe what exactly it is. And I know that's sometimes a hard thing. I've seen it, I've seen it trivialized as, uh, you know. Uh, don't I, go there. Oh, yeah. I, the F word will then come out on your podcast. Here we go. Though. That's right. <laughs> Some people, not myself, have called it a glorified sidewalk. Yeah, well, that's the, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's not an effing sidewalk, Lou. (laughs) Tell us what it is, Brian. For those for those who have not visited Indianapolis, Uh, Brian, they can bleep us. They can bleep us. Oh man, I've got my past board chair and probably a future board chair. It might be the same person, so I I don't I don't want to go there. (laughs) So um, so uh, the cultural trails. So what it is, and I used to have this beautiful sound bite, but you know the cultural trail has been done since 2012 now, so I'm six years from having all the beautiful sound bites in my head, but the Cultural Trail is basically this beautifully designed, wonderfully designed, and actually Kevin Osborne, uh, the lead designer with his firm, Rendell Ernstberger is in the house tonight, because we've become really great friends over the years. So, it's a beautifully designed, wonderfully paved, um, awesomely uh, uh, landscaped, um, lit for twenty for nighttime use. It's got beautiful public art, but it is basically a bicycle and best and pedestrian pathway that connects. First of all, it was all about connecting the five downtown cultural districts. But then, as any as I think, and this is something that I've learned through the Cultural Trail, and I get to speak about this around the country too, is that. You know, if you just get in the game with a big idea, just get in the game. And then where that idea ends up often will be bigger and better than what your original ideas were. So the cultural trail really grew. I mean, it, went, it started as a 5.5 mile idea, it became an eight mile idea. It started as just this idea of connecting the cultural districts. And then the opportunity was to connect every significant arts, cultural, 
um, heritage, entertainment, and sports venue in all of downtown. Wow. And then it became wow. also, we found out if we just add this and add that, it can actually become the downtown hub for the entire uh, Central Indiana Greenway Trail Master Plan. So it is the downtown hub that feeds into all these different trails. But it's this, I think it's, you know, well, first and foremost, it's this way to experience a very vibrant downtown by foot, by bike, by Segway, by scooter. I guess scooters aren't allowed right now, but they should be. We're working on that. Um, by wheelchair, by baby stroller. And by, ho no, no horses, no horses. <laughs> And, and, if, and if dogs, people need to do a better job of picking up after their dogs, too. But anyway, it's this idea of creating, I think my favorite thing about the Cultural Trail, which we kind of stumbled in before we ever built any of it, was that we wanted to build something where that the journey was as enjoyable and inspiring as all the destinations or any singular destination. And I always thought, you know, about 50% of the people would use the trail to get from A to B. And I use it almost every day with the Pacers bike share to get to a meeting where I don't have to want to park. I have a lot of meetings and, um, and a mile from mm -hmm. my office and I don't want to drive and park and sometimes I'm in too much of a hurry to walk so I'll get on the bike share and mm -hmm. use it all the time. Even in my, I use the, the coldest I've ever used bike share was 18 degrees. <laughs> And uh, that was cold. And uh, well, let's but, point out that the cultural trail has its own cleaning crew for snow removal. Correct? It does. In fact, if, Which uh, is pretty so my good friend Matt Gutwein, who's a very serious uh, runner, tells me that when there's snow, the cultural trail is the absolute, sometimes only good place, but always the best place to run, especially wow. when there's snow, because it's clear and everything else isn't. And I know that a lot of people, those of us who have visited other cities. Sometimes you leave your hotel, if you're unfamiliar with the city, which direction are you gonna walk? Where are you gonna go? How is it gonna work? One of the things I think is a real asset of it is somebody leaves a hotel downtown, there's a path to go. Yes, you could walk on the sidewalk to get from point A to point B, but here's kind of a guided, you know, you get a little guidance from it. With art that you can With see <laughs> as you're walking instead of just walking on the sidewalks looking at buildings and, and one, stuff. And one of the things that has really made a visible difference and I think it's undeniable is what's happened with Virginia Avenue, which is a stretch from downtown, for those of you out of town, from downtown Indianapolis to an area called Fountain Square, which is about what, a mile plus? It's a slightly, mile and a half. About a mile and a half from downtown. Now it was not a path that anyone would necessarily, people didn't walk from downtown to Fountain Square, as much as there was cool stuff in Fountain Square. They didn't do it. Part of it was because, talking about city planning, a gigantic parking lot that was in the way. Yes, you could walk under it, but it wasn't very appealing to do that. It wasn't, didn't pull you through. Well, once the cultural trail set up there, I don't want to put all the credit to the cultural trail, but a lot of it, development started happening. And now what's happening on Virginia Avenue is, you know, restaurants all along it, condos all along it, apartments, all kinds of stuff happening on that trail, guiding people in and out of, of Fountain Square, but also being its own kind of district. Well, and, and, you know, we always think of Fountain Square, which is what we were thinking about. We were always thinking of Fountain Square. We, this idea of Fletcher Place. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't even, I'm, I'm not even sure I knew that that was a thing, you know, and uh, because there was nothing there. There was a, uh, in fact, I always, uh, this, is, this is really not an exaggeration. The very worst Department of Motor, motor Vehicle Bureau facility in the history of the world was there. <laughs> 
and I used to go there, and you know, you'd kick at the rats and you'd kick at the cockroaches and wait in line and hope that you could make it out alive with maybe your license or maybe not. You just didn't care. You just wanted to survive. This message not brought to you by the Indiana Tourism Association. <laughs> Those are for my friends at the INDOT, right? Uh, <laughs> um, so it's a lot better now, by the way. Uh, I mean, I actually, I mean, I shout out to the state of Indiana. When, I, when you have to go get your license renewed, first of all, you can do it online. But the times I go in, it's actually a transformed experience. So it this is. was, you know, I'm not, and the Coastal Trail gets no credit for that. But I just want to give the, bureauc <laughs> the bureaucracy a shout out when they deserve one. So anyway, um, but Fletcher Place didn't really, you know, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, and I always focus on this is going to transform Fountain Square, Square which has which had great bones. It always had great bones. Duck pin bowling, ladies That's and gentlemen. Right. Duck pin bowling. Right. And, you know, and the whole uh, Fountain Square Theater building, which was a 1927 movie palace. You know, different, but but was created the same year that the Indiana Repertory Theater, the Indiana Theater was built in the same year that the Symphony Circle Theater. I mean, that was, that was a, ma That's a major beautiful building. But what's happened is and the way I always explain that uh, that journey down to Fountain Square before the Cultural Trail was it was an ugly journey. It wasn't. I mean, it was an ugly trip. It was there was nothing to look at. You would no, no one ever rode their bike. I mean, first of all, you'd be killed. Um, you know, uh, no one. <laughs> Another would, message not brought to you by the. No, you know, no one would. No, there would be no reason to walk that. It would be the ugliest, first most off, desolate walk. And, it sounds uh, like Escape from New York. <laughs> you're describing here. <laughs> like, it's no. a lot Indianapolis is awesome now. <laughs> but uh, I'm describing the before. And then when you come and, and right. experience the after, you, you'll be even more excited. Don't but, die. Yeah, right. <laughs> you Not dying is by the way, plus. By the, way, by the way, we had a lot of haters about the Coastal Trail that we were going to get people hurt. As far as I know, I, I have not heard, and I've no one, you know, I don't, and I think I would know, no one's really ever been heard on the cult, riding a bike on the cultural trail. No car has hit a, 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 a bicyclist or a pedestrian on the cultural trail. I think people have fallen off their scooters on the cultural trail. I have, I have heard about that. So, yeah. So, anyway, but it was a very ugly journey. And now it's a beautiful journey. And, and I think why uh, Fletcher Place has become so uh, spectacular, um, even sometimes to some degree, more, um, uh, some more development than Fountain Square because it's right. so closer to downtown. Right. So you know, you've, if, you're, if you're living in, in Fletcher Place, you've got a, a beautiful environment in Fletcher Place. You're a half mile to uh, Fountain Square right. and you're less than a mile to downtown. I mean, that mm. is kind of the sweet spot. Right. Well, you've obviously been to a lot of cities to look at what they're doing. What do you still covet uh, from other, other? you know, I'm not saying we could be New York, you know, Indianapolis is going to be New York or be Chicago, but of comparable cities, what are some other people doing really well? Um, so I think what I covet is water, some of their waterfronts. Um, and we're working on that. We got, you know, there's a big effort to work on the White River. Um, we, we at CICF co-founded uh, 10 years, uh, actually it wasn't, it was 2011. So what, seven, eight years ago, uh, eight years ago, we co-founded uh, Reconnecting to Our Waterways, which has had a lot of good neighborhood improvement. And, and people, and I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken this credit, and I'm still not taking, I'm not, I'm not having connect, uh, Row Reconnecting to Our Waterways take the credit, but a lot of people have told me that Roe, Reconnecting to Our Waterways, is the catalyst 
for this focus on the White River. Mm -hmm. That kind of surprised me. I mean, I didn't, I, I wouldn't have claimed that. Daniel, but... growing up, did you ever take a dip in the White River down there? <laughs> Lord, no, no. <laughs> and actually, I'm from that neighborhood, Riverside. I'm, I'm actually from that neighborhood, so I know exactly like the White River right there where the Naval Armory used to be. Yeah. Uh, it's horrible, yeah, it was bad for years. Years ago, we wrote a, uh, uh, writer Sam Stahl and I wrote a piece for Indianapolis Monthly on that, and the opening sentence of it was, look, a turd. Because we, we decided... Enjoy your meal, ladies and gentlemen. Now, now that sounds like Sam escape I, from New York. No, Sam and I canoed, canoed from Broad Ripple through downtown along the White River in the late 90s. I thought you were going to say in hazmat suits. It was, we should have been. Yeah, it, was, it was. We were very careful with the paddles. Let's well, put it that we, way. We are all, we are all <laughs> contributing toward a $2 billion fix called the Deep Rock Tunnel, or the, deep, or the, the deep, I think it's, I think they changed the name of it, but you know, we're building these tunnels under the city mm -hmm. to, uh, on, a, on a rain event where it used to overflow this sewage system, and then that sewage would be released into our streams mm -hmm. and river. Um, that's getting fixed, and, and the White River is gonna be actually like 95% clean within a year or two. Wow. This is why I mentioned earlier wow. that my head spins when we think about long-term planning for a city because all of these elements needing to come together is, is mind-boggling. Um, so I want people's waterfronts. That's where we want waterfronts. I, I, I want, there's some beautiful city waterfronts that we could do and we're working on it and I really want to see that accomplished. How much does, I jokingly referenced public transportation earlier, but how much is that still an issue? And again, what cities of comparable size, of, do you think have handled that well? What can we learn from other places? Well, we're actually, uh, we are, another thing that we're leading on, which actually was a, the catalyst of that was a uh, article um, um, uh, out of Indianapolis Monthly that was asking a bunch of people, what's, your, what's, another, what's the next big idea that you could think of for mm -hmm. Indianapolis? And um, so that, that created some thinking uh, with me and some of my friends. and. And uh, so we're actually working on something right now called the Personal Mobility Network. And that is to take all of our assets and transportation, which we have many, actually, and we have some unique ones. So we have the cultural trail. We have a great bicycle uh, connect you know, a bicycle infrastructure. It needs to get better, but it's still really, really good. We have a, the, one of the most successful bike share programs in the country, Pacers Bike Share. We have the first and still only one of two Car, uh, uh, electric car shares, Blue Indy. Mm -hmm. We were the first in North America. Los Angeles now has the same company. They have Blue LA, but this, it's basically copying what we started with that company out of uh, France called Bellore. So we have that. That's a unique um, uh, asset. We have, I think, this red line and the bus rapid transit, I think, is, is really just the right scale of spending. $300 million, not $4 billion like St. Louis and Minneapolis, I mean, uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis did. They spent $4 billion. If we had spent $4 billion a decade ago, I'd be worried that in 10 years, that $4 billion would be, uh, you know, wiped out through progress. But I think spending $300 million over the next five, seven years on bus rapid transit is just the kind of the perfect amount of, to create another spine. But the idea is to take all of that with Uber and Lyft and other new um, uh, innovations when it comes to technology and knit all that together so that any one of you or anyone living in a, even more so, more important than you, uh, someone living in a challenged neighborhood who does not have a car, 
who cannot afford a car, who needs to get either to a grocery store, a job, or a health appointment, that they can get on a phone, and if they don't have a phone, we can give them a phone, and that they can say here, we know that they don't have to say where they are, we know where they are, mm -hmm. and they say, I need to get here, and that phone tells them how to get there, and we could supply like a $200 a month transportation subsidy, right. so that they can actually get there for free, up to $200 a month per, per person. And what's happening in just the last six months, we've been working on this for three years. In the last six months, we've gotten the attention of Ford Smart Mobility. Ford Motor Company has put tens of millions of dollars in this effort, and we are actually just been chosen for a Cities of Tomorrow partnership where we're gonna be doing a bunch of innovation with Ford. I had a meeting with about 10 of us from Indianapolis uh, on Thursday. We went up to Dearborn, about 12 of us from Indianapolis. Tom Leinbarger, the CEO of Cummins, is one of our big partners on this. And um, I, th I, think, I think in the next year, we might get Ford to pick Indianapolis to, to um, pilot a $10 million project that brings all these aspects together. Wow. And that we can leapfrog all these other cities who've spent billions on light rail. Wow. Is, it, <laughs> is there any hope for the monorail downtown connecting? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that was a $50 million idea. That, that, I wish that 50 million would have gone to the arcs. What do you yeah. think? Oh, this was a monorail that was connecting downtown, basically downtown hospitals. Um, that is now not running anymore. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that was an, that was, I don't know if it was an innovation because uh, yeah. I, lived in San, I lived in Seattle as a little kid. They had a monorail too, and that's right. not running anymore either. But, you know, it didn't Can seem like... Can something like, like the High Line like, happen out of that? So, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. You know, people, how many people have been to the High Line in New York City? Hands don't help in a podcast. Come on. <laughs> I've been following the High Line really from the very beginning because I, you know, there's kind of actually I, I do like the High Line and there's some there is a bit of rivalry between I mean in my in my mind between the Cultural Trail and the mm -hmm. High Line they're different things um, of course you know actually I've been thrilled with how much national international publicity we've gotten for the Cultural Trail mm -hmm. it's it's. 10x my expectation that we what we would get right. because I thought we'd be lost because we're in Indianapolis. Because yeah. so many things that we do that are great in Indianapolis do not get covered by the American media, which is headquarters we know on the West Coast or the East Coast. And New York gets a free pass right. on everything because that's one of the centers. But um, I've actually been thrilled about how much we've gotten. But um, I don't, I've had people say, why don't we do a version of the High Line? It's like, we don't want to copy New York's High Line. Right. Not that I wouldn't. I do like the idea of being elevated. I, you know, I've been looking. Kevin's going to hear this one more time. Kevin Osborne. I wanted, I wanted elevation on the Cultural Trail. I wanted to be able to ride my bike up a hill and look over the city. The loop-de-loop loop might yeah, happen. Yeah, the loop-de-loop. Loop. Yes! Yes! Maybe that's... Work I, on it. I need to go to that metaphor, the loop-de-loop. <laughs> But, no, um, well, one of the but we don't want we don't want to we don't want to see we don't want to copy cities. We right. we can take we can take inspiration from cities, but we've got to find the uniquely authentic Indianapolis innovation that puts us on the map for the innovator. Because being and I learned this when when uh, Chicago did the um, the public the art the cows, cows right and and everyone was, this, was doing and then and then Cincinnati did the pigs and then you know and and Chicago was its international 
mm-hmm. destination for doing the cows. Right. And Cincinnati captured about 40% of that a year later. And about five years later, we did race cars and everyone yawned because mm-hmm. we were just copying other people. Right. So it's about what could we do with an elevated mm-hmm. trail right. that is completely different and wonderful and unique and yeah. fantastic for Indianapolis. Okay. And one of the downsides of the High Line, as much as I love it, is you can walk past the coolest things, in the, but you're walking above it. You don't know what retail is down there. You don't know what right. art is That's down right. there. You know, the last time, uh, and this was uh, this was shaded by the fact that I was, I'm reading this book that's very critical, very revolutionary about gentrification, which um, we need to have a revolution, revolutionary look at that. But I was I was in a very negative headspace about all this development. But at last time, it was about a month ago, I was walking the High Line in Chelsea. Now, Chelsea, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was this incredible artsy neighborhood, right? Gritty, artsy mm-hmm. neighborhood. And and now it's like, oh my gosh, I, don't, I bet you can't live along the High Line anywhere within a half a mile if you're not worth $20 million or more. And, I, and, the, and the phrase that just hit me was development porn. Mm-hmm. I, and 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 I and and it's no some of it was beautiful some of it was beautiful I just I got really Don't impressed. Google that. Do not Google development that. Porn. <laughs> development porn. Anyway, it it was very depressing. It seemed soulless. It seemed like it lost and then here and then Chelsea Market, which is mm-hmm. this very famous place, had a, this is what this was what also kind of put me into a tailspin. There were signs on every door that tour groups need to report to this door. Not that door. That used to be the market where people went wow. to, you know, to to buy things to live every day, and now it's a Disneyland. It's a mm. Disney. It's a Disneyland place. Oh. It's sad, actually. On that upbeat note, that's we're New York. doing great on the upbeat. That's notes. New York. We're doing we, are. Notes. we are um, <laughs> during the break. We'd like you to scribble down questions you may have, actually, for any of our guests um, today, uh, for Daniel or for who you are about to hear. First of all, thank you, Brian. All right, thank you, Brian. Brian. Thank you, Jonathan. We're gonna we'll bring Brian we'll bring Brian back up in the second half to field some more questions of yours and a few more of ours. But for now, let's turn to music on the brink of the release of her new EP. Um, we are thrilled that she could join us. Please welcome Megan Christine Martin. Yay! a bug on my microphone. <laughs> a little stink bug. That's funny. Title of your next album? <laughs> There's a bug. <laughs> but that, you know. Is it still there? Let me get it. It's, yeah, he can hang out. Okay, sing it to him then. <laughs>
Megan Christine Martin. We're going to hear more music after the break, but for now we're going to take a short break. Uh, feel free to write questions down. We're going to chat with Megan coming back. Brian will be back up. You're going to hear some uh, interaction with Daniel. But for now, uh, take a few minutes break and we'll be back. Welcome back to the second half of this month's episode of Lou Harry Gets Real. Uh, first thing I want to do is thank our sponsor for the show, the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat yes, Pub. Yes, yes. For those just listening at home, a beautiful, comfortable space, perfect for many types of gatherings. Perfect. Um, opened in 2014, originally with three studio apartments up here. One wouldn't know that by how cool it's become with rich wood paneling, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, and artwork and statues and collectibles curated by Mr. Rick Risingmore, owner since 1969. The room seats up to 60 people, which means we're approaching fire code violation, but we're not quite there yet. Um, very comfortable for many kinds of events. Come out to the Aristocrat Pub, whether it's for an event or just for lunch or dinner downstairs. The Aristocrat Pub, thank you for being a part of uh, The Harry Gets Real. And the enthusiastic applause will be reflected in the tips for the waitstaff. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, Daniel Martin is here, and I would be remiss if I didn't invite him to take over the mic for a few minutes and have some fun with you guys. Please welcome Daniel Martin from Act of Foo Improv. Hello, everyone. I am so tall. There we are. All right. Welcome. I want to thank Lou for having me tonight. Now, uh, people, there's a miss conception about me. I'm not a uh, stand-up comedian by any way, shape, or form. I am a comedic actor. I do a lot of improv. I do a lot of stage mostly and uh, here recently been doing a lot of commercials. So uh, what I'm going to do as I do in improv is rely on you. So uh, hopefully y'all can uh, help me out some. Uh, can y'all help me out? Y'all willing to help me out some? All right, give me a number, a number between one and infinity. 22. 22. Yes, that's a number. <laughs> I just wanted to illustrate uh, audience participation. Thank you. <laughs> 22, thank you. All right, listen, I have a show coming up uh, January 25th. It's going to be at Humboldt's Creations. 
I, which is on 65th and Benford near there. Um, Google address. I don't have the address with me. Uh, Humble Creation. So I'm going to be giving away two free tickets to our show on the 25th. So I need about six volunteers, and one of the six will win two tickets to the show on the 25th. So raise your hand if you'll be able to help me tonight. Two volunteers. Anybody, starting now. Raise of those hands. People nervous? Oh, I love this. That's one. Yes, that's two. Yes. And then I start picking people who don't raise their hands. <laughs> so uh, let's get those folks up here. Everyone that I've chosen so far. Good. Yes, 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 yes. We need uh, three more people. Uh, someone's being... <laughs> He's looking at his, his tab like, uh, sir, you have been nominated. <laughs> you have been nominated, sir, please. I need two more, two more guests. I promise this is harmless. Real fun, real fun. Don't, don't be nervous, it's gonna be fun. Uh, yes, sir, you, you can't come up here. Yes, sir, please. Give it up for this guy. Yay! I'm so sorry, sir. I am so sorry. <laughs> I need, I need one more volunteer, please. Is it? Is it? Yes. Is it her? Yes. Did you volunteer? Did you volunteer her? Perfect. Give it up for her. All right, guys and gals. Thank Dang you, Daniel. We're now out of time. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Thank keep you going. for playing. Uh, all right, thank y'all for coming up no, here. No, no, keep going. no I appreciate y'all uh, not knowing what game we're going to play. You're so bold. Thank you. All right. As I make up the game in my head, uh, thank you. It should work. All right, the game we're going to play is called the question game, all right? All you have to do, it's real simple. All you have to do is ask questions. Do not repeat don't repeat the question. If you hear a question already said, don't say that question again, okay? Don't do it. I don't. I'm going to have to show you where you came from. Right there. It's not too far either. So it'll work. All right? All you have to do is ask questions. That's it. Do not repeat. Do not stammer. Do not stutter. It has to go quick. Where are you from? How tall are you? Where you get your shoes from? Why is water wet? Does it have to make sense? No. But it has to be a question. Don't answer these questions. Okay? Scoot in. Scoot in for me. Everybody get next to me. Scoot in, because I'm going to be passing the mic around. Go ahead and come around here. You're going to be my number one. Come right here. Perfect. Stand right there. Perfect. You come up some? Perfect. All right. So it's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six. All right? When the mic's in front of you, have something to say. If not, I shall show you your seat. Hi. Hi. You're out. Go sit down somewhere. You're out. No, I'm, just I'm just fine. I'm just fine. All right. You have your question ready? Yeah. Everyone ready? Yeah. Here we go. Five. Four. I could just say go. Ready? Go. Has anyone here ever been to Southport, Indiana? Who won the game? Who won the uh, Colts game? Who speaks French? Is this over now? Is a dog's mouth really cleaner than a human's? Is anyone here a Bob Dylan fan? Who are you? Is three my lucky number? What's your favorite color? 
What's your favorite number? Ooh. Is anyone from Philly? Who loves New York City? Who am I? Does anyone know where Newcastle is? Yeah, I got some long questions. <laughs> <laughs> What's this? Did someone fart? How old am I? Have you ever handled 32 teenagers at one time? <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared to ask in what way. <laughs> Who is she? What day is this? How many things am I holding? What's your favorite yogurt? How old are you? How many more questions do I need to think of? <laughs> How much change do I have in my pocket? Do I get a free ticket? What's that? Daniel, is this over? <laughs> what comes after three? Is the iPhone really dead? <laughs> y'all are good at this. <laughs> now I'm gonna have to trip y'all up a little bit. Since y'all are so good at this, now, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna have a conversation for all of you. The conversation has to make sense. We have to talk about tonight's show. But each of our sentences has to in line with the alphabet. So my, my statement or question will start with A, then B, then C, then D, then E, then F, then G, all the way around. You with us? Is, are these questions? No. They don't have to be questions, just conversations. We just have to make conversations using the alphabet. All right? Has to make sense. If she asks a question, you have to answer a question with that letter. Do you understand? <laughs> then I shall show her. Oh, she doesn't have to ask a question. You can just comment on her statement. All right? Since you're new at this, we're going to start with A and go all the way around. And we're just casually talking. Go. It's so nice to meet all of you. It's oh, wait, I. Have a seat. <laughs> Give it up for ladies and gentlemen. You see how this goes now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right, starting with B. Go. Ah, uh, uh, you. <laughs> Have a seat. Give it up for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I asked him if he understood. He said yes. <laughs> All right, you're gonna start with C. Go. Can I go to the bathroom? Don't ask me. Does he know where the bathroom is? D. Go on. E. Get your E. e. Oh, oh. oh. He didn't under. I didn't understand. He understood. You're gonna start with E. Ready? Go. Everybody knows that this is a great place to be. For the love of God, can this be done? Go home. <laughs> Honestly, you're talking to me? Ah, uh, no. Ah! Uh, 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 is A. Did she say, ah, uh, I'm out? No. I'm out? She's in. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> give it to him or no? Uh, give it up for him, ladies and gentlemen. We are now on K. Well, okay. right, K? Are we okay? Yeah. yeah. Keep this moving along. Let us just have the tickets. <laughs> Maybe I'm my birthday tomorrow? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Please? Uh, give it up, ladies and gentlemen, the winner! <laughs> We took us to Active Food Show on the 25th at Humble Creations. Give it up for Miss Bonnie Bell. Uh, and give it up for Daniel Martin, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to bring back up 
Megan Christine Martin, no relation, to uh, to chat a little bit, find out a little bit more about her and her music, and we're going to be hearing another song later in the program. Megan Christine back. Martin. Welcome back, Megan. Now you are you are based in Indianapolis now, and I, I am. grew up in Florida and Indy. Tell us a little bit about. So I was born in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents and I moved down to Florida. Parents divorced, lived in Georgia, and then moved back to Florida. And then when I was 21, which was in 2014, I decided to drop everything and move to Indianapolis and stayed with the parents for a while. And I've been here ever since. Musically, what did you find when you got it? Were you already uh, looking to build a career in music at that point? Actually, I wasn't. I was at a point in my life where I was starting over and was considering going back to school. Um, but I got invited to the Ukulele World Congress um, in Brown County, Indiana, and played my first real open mic, uh-huh. and that's where I got started. What was that like going oh. on stage for the first time playing? Well, <laughs> uh, the Ukulele World Congress is anywhere from 500 to 900 people on two different fields. Most of them are inebriated. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, I was I was shaking. I was very nervous. I used to shake from head to toe um, in front of people, talking mostly. Any time I had to be in front of anybody, it was really scary. But it was it was a lot of fun. But um, a good friend of mine, who I didn't really know at the time, his name is he goes by CISO, He came up to me and he said, "You know, you're amazing. Do you realize how talented you are?" And I said. I don't know what you're talking about. This is my first time. <laughs> and he was like, are you kidding me? And then he just kind of walked away, grunted, and then came back and just <laughs> praised me. <laughs> so it wasn't just a line. No, no. It, was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> now, you have a family history of not just music, but mandolin and other stringed uh, instruments in you. Yes. So my father is John Martin. Um, he was in a band called Syndicato, which he, I guess he still is in. They have Some a, of you know Syndicato. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she said, <laughs> he plays mandolin. He, he plays anything with strings on it. Um, a dobro, um, mandola now, uh, guitar. Uh, plays with a guy, um, Frank Dean, who's a, an established um, singer-songwriter. Now, his band, they worked with people like Amy Lou Harris and Steve Earle Dwight and Yoakum. Junior Brown, Dwight Yoakam. Mm-hmm. Were you sort of in the wings at any of those shows? Did you get a chance to I was too. I was too young, um, mm. but I had the albums. Dad always made sure I had the albums, and I would listen to them over and over and over again because that was, that was my connection to him because I lived with my mother growing mm-hmm. up. Um, but, yeah, that's really, you know, I grew up. He, we used to get mixed CDs in the summer. Uh, we would drive down to Georgia, Florida, wherever we oh. were at the time, and we would have these mixed CDs of old like vintage country music, and I loved it. I latched onto it. Patsy Cline was an early uh, inspiration for me. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, started to figure out how to sing around it, mm-hmm. and I learned how to harmonize with Patsy, kind of thing. In that way. So there wasn't a, a rebellion against your father's no, kind of music. No, no, no. It was more of trying to be close to him because okay. uh, I wasn't. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. What um, a lot of your 
what I've in listening to your music, there seems to be there's very much a poetic thread to the writing, mm -hmm. which I, in most music there is, You're but a writer. more so in yours. <laughs> and looking at that, it feels like the lyrics come first, but do they? Yes, they do. Yes, I always carry a journal. Mm -hmm. um, it started out as just scrap paper, but I wanted to be more organized because I'm not at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I I did I love poetry, and any time, um, especially in high school, um, I didn't want to because do anything but poetry i hated to read the novels i hated mm. any of it but the simplistic the simplicity and the emotion that comes in poetry and some of it's nonsense but <laughs> but to be so impactful in a simple way is something that i love so much where does the songwriting come from is it pain is it love is it what would you say? What I would say motivation? there's a lot of sorrow behind it. Is there? Yeah. Um, my mother uh, suffers um, from a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to go on about it because that's part of her private mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was around too much of it. Mm -hmm. And that was my way to um, sort of get away from it, if that makes uh, sense. It can't be easy playing some venues where... You know, it's great when it's a concert and people are all paying attention yeah. and they're all there, but I yeah. know sometimes the gigs people end up having to take are people chatting in the corner and people yes. doing... Yes. Talk a little bit about how you deal with the loud table in the corner or the um, people who think it's an improv show and want to talk you to you. You have to put yourself in a mindset of that this is jam time. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's a couple people listening. Um those two or three people really matter because they're the ones tipping you. They're the ones buying your album. Um, but you really have to just kind of hang out and just forget about it. You know, it's hard. It's tough. The first couple ones were real, real tough. But, um, but I hope that it gets me to a place where it's worth it. You know, mm -hmm. and I think it being here, you know, it's it's worth it. Kind of things like this. How do you ultimately decide what's going to go on or not go on a recording? Well, you know, honestly, I guess I, I have been fortunate enough to to be able to. I talk to my the people, my fans, mm -hmm. and they tell me what they like. Mm -hmm. And part of that jam time, the two hours, the three hours, whatever. If they pick a song that they really love, and I'm like, okay, and it hasn't been recorded yet, <laughs> that's that's usually how I kind of go about it. But if it's really important to me, and I really feel like like it's helped me, then that's sort of how I choose. Um, but with like the new EP, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll ask me about that. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to do your job for you. <laughs> Tell us about the new EP. Is there a new EP? Is there a new EP? I've heard of the new EP. What's the new EP? Tell us, I know the single has already dropped. Really? So they can listen to the single like when they anytime go home. They, they want. can listen wow. to it anytime. They yeah. can listen to it on the ride home. And then after they listen to it, they have right. something to look forward to. Exactly. Like a new EP. That's yeah. why I understand yeah. that a new EP is coming out. That's awesome. Maybe, oh, maybe you should tell us about the new Please. EP. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> So the, the new EP was... There's a new EP. Is there? Yeah. Is there? The new album <laughs> um, would not have happened without a guy named Craig Helmerich. Helmerich, I think this is how you pronounce his name. Sure. Um, for today, yes. Yeah. He started a non-for-profit, which has been phenomenal for the local music scene, um, called Fourth Sunday Music Company. He's working with a recording studio called Postal Recordings. Um, I believe it's on the west side of town. 
and um, I think Tyler from Postal was in the band called Nuclear. Um, what is it? Nuclear. Thank Nuclear you. Sciences. And he's a genius. Alex uh, is the other guy that was mixing, um, and he's awesome too. Uh, but anyway, Craig started had this idea of helping musicians with talent. Um, and a lot of us don't have a lot of money. Um, that's not how we make our money. How we make our money is part-time gigs or nine-to-five jobs. And then we play music on the side. And we don't have a lot of money to go towards these interests or the love that, you know, mm-hmm. music and art and all that. Um, so we had this idea about um, getting Postal involved and putting money towards studio time, which in this case, it's 10 hours um, from 10 o'clock to 10 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. of just recording time. That includes the mixing, does not include the mastering. But he's picked out a musician once a month, every fourth Sunday, and I was the first, one of the first ones, so, yeah. And that will be available? That will be available February 23rd. Oh, yeah, and we're doing it. It's actually, I know you said hi-fi, but it's actually the lo-fi lounge. It's right. upstairs in the Murphy building. In Fountain Square, which you can get to by going down the cultural, cultural trail. It <laughs> all ties together. See what we did there? Um, one final very selfish question. Um, my wife wanted a ukulele for her birthday, and I did pick one up, and we'll be giving it to her tomorrow. Awesome. Um, any very specific tips on either repertoire to avoid or uh, any other things that she and I should be aware of. <laughs> um, well, I mentioned the Ukulele World Congress. Um, if you need tweaks or you need advice or if you um, are looking into, you know, um, lessons even, hey, if you need lessons, let me know. Okay. <laughs> um, Mainland Ukuleles uh, is great. They're in Brown County and they've been super supportive of my music and yeah, that's what, who I go to. Having gone to the Congress, what song do you never again want to hear on the ukulele? Oh God. Um, is it Over the Rainbow? Well, that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> he had asked me about it earlier. I just told her like not an hour ago that it was one of my favorites and now I'm finding out well, that you don't even want to hear it anymore. <laughs> The Judy Garland version is fantastic, <laughs> but um, Wagon Wheel, and that's a musically, you know, mus- universal yeah. song that I just, I've heard enough. Because everyone thinks they can sing it. Yeah, I, I, well, can, I can sing it. Yeah. Should we all yeah. do a, Would we have to pay for the rights if we all did a chorus of this one? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much. We're going to, uh, Megan's going to stick around. We're going to bring Brian back up, because we have questions uh, from the crowd for... Uh, that people want to know. Yeah, boy. Um, first off, a question. Where was the one for everybody? Um, oh, can any of you, that includes all of you, uh, cite uh, any examples of an arts event that changed your idea about Indianapolis? Is there anything, one event that you saw here that made you kind of think differently about the city? Uh, for me, it's uh, Pattern Magazine every time it comes out. I, I see Pattern, and it's like, in fact, I was talking to Pauline Osharov, and I said, this is the Indianapolis I want to live in. And she looked at me and she says, this is all from Indianapolis. This is the Indianapolis you're living in. And I thought, well, we just need to get more people to, to, to completely buy into it then. Daniel, is there anything you saw? Uh, or heard? 
Well, actually, I am a part of an organization who is absolutely wonderful, Sapphire Theater. Uh, they have uh, opened up Indianapolis eyes to a lot of things. They're a mobile theater. Uh, they don't have a, uh, a stage per se. They're using this whole city as their stage. So uh, any problems that arise, they, they take on it uh, firsthand. And uh, recently, last year, and also this year, uh, we did a, uh, a pre-enactment uh, over the gentrification of some neighborhoods in Indiana. And instead of uh, you know, supporting businesses or people coming in buying up all the land, uh, we're there, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're showing the, what, what the possibilities of the neighborhood with the people that are living there now. So uh, we've been around the 16th Street area and uh, that area, the neighbors, we're meeting everybody. It is such a great way to meet people and to let people know that uh, what they have now is worth it, you know, and they can build from that without having to move or get pushed out. Right. So, so it's not, uh, it's not like imposing a culture on the right, neighborhood. It's not. It is not. It's learning and growing what they have. Yes. That's great. Megan, did, was there anything, anyone you heard or any particular... Indianapolis concert. Anything to add to that? No, oh, I'm terrible at answering this. Okay, <laughs> we'll wait. No, the, the one that uh, one one that comes to mind to me while we wait. Uh, when I first moved here, the first night, actually driving from uh, Jersey and got here, and I was invited to an event that I won't say what it was, but it was a train wreck. It was awful, and it was my first arts event in Indianapolis, and I thought, what have I stepped into? And some people said, maybe you want to turn around. The next night, though, I went to the Indianapolis Symphony, and it was a memorial concert for Joseph Gingold, who was a violin teacher, world-renowned, well-known, that was one of the most wonderful, not just musically incredible concerts, but the heart of that concert was phenomenal. And that second night made me go, okay, we can, we can root here, I can stay here. So that's one that, that really impacted me and changed how I thought about Indianapolis after two days. So what was the question? The question was, <laughs> and can you cite an arts event uh, that changed your idea about Indianapolis? Or, or broaden it and say an arts event that particularly sure, impacted uh, I'll, you? I'll talk about the Virginia Avenue Music Fest. Please. That's been a phenomenal thing for local music, mm -hmm. especially. Because mm -hmm. before we had the, the Fountain Square Music Festival, which did highlight local musicians. This was probably 2014, I think even a year before that. And then that kind of changed into national acts. And then the you know local music um, sort of got turned away. Um, but the uh, Mike Angel stepped in. I don't know if it's, yeah, he's done a, he's done a lot for um, the local music scene. So I will say, you know, yeah, vamp. <laughs> uh, a question for Brian. Uh, India has been a sports tourism city for since the eighties. Uh, how and can we sell ourselves as an arts and cultural <clears throat> tourism city? Will people come here? And is that a viable, you know, use of marketing money to get people here for the arts and culture of the city? Um, I do think it is. I think, uh, I th you know, I'm a sports fan, but I'm uh, I, what impacts my life on a daily basis is the arts and culture and the real things going on here that aren't uh, just fun and games. So I do think we can do that. I think what we have to do is we have to realize, though, as 
citizens and residents of Indianapolis that what we have here is worth it. We have to be the ambassadors, and we have to, can only be effective ambassadors if we really believe that what we have here is first class. I believe it's first class. I'd put you know what I see at the IRT and what I see at the Phoenix Theater and incredible show I saw at the saw that uh, the first show of the Summit Performance uh, Group. You know these are first class things that if I see them in any other city. I would think, wow, that's awesome, but they're happening here. Um, two very similar questions, so I'll sort of merge them together. How does Indianapolis uh, continue its development of community assets, including the cultural trail and other things, without displacing families and persons from their own neighborhoods? Talking about gentrification, how do you avoid it? Uh, is there a price to uh, continuing that sort of development? Well, Daniel mentioned pre-enactment, which we sponsored because we think that's, is, that's an awesomely uh, innovative way of getting people to respect what exists. You want, is there anything else that you learned from your pre-enactment that you would be able to answer that question in an, in an additional way? I, uh, well, personally, being involved with it and stuff, um, I was there prior to uh, the actual event taking place, meeting with the folks, uh, the neighbors, hearing their stories. Oh my goodness, some of those families have been in those houses since the 50s. And, and, and just hearing those stories of how it used to be a house with a big yard, now everyone is right next to each other with these houses and mm -hmm. stuff, because people are just trying to make money over there. But uh, knowing that uh, there's organizations like Sapphire who are looking into this and talking with the neighbors and letting them know that, hey, we understand that getting rid of this isn't the, what's needed. Mm -hmm. Keeping it here and growing more history from it is what's mm -hmm. needed. And just being involved with that has been great for me. If I could add that uh, this is something that we're really focused on at the Central Indiana Community Foundation. I have colleagues of mine in the room who are, are in charge of this. So one of the things that we're looking at, that we are doing, is we've engaged what we call neighborhood ambassadors, CICF ambassadors. And what we're going to do is we're going to create ambassador teams. In fact, if any of one of you wants to be on an ambassador team, please let me know tonight. Awesome. And But the job of being an, on the, an ambassador team member is that you're going to go into a neighborhood that's not your own, and you're first going to show up and shut up. Or a nicer <laughs> way of saying it is you're going to listen and learn. You're going to build trust and relationships and then when you have trust and relationships, then maybe you can have some ideas. But all the ideas in the first year or so come from the neighbors who are the experts in their own neighborhood. Wow. And our job eventually will be how can we connect some of the resources or network that we have into helping those neighbors make their neighborhood even better. Um, but it's they're the leaders and we're the learners. Wow. That's very much That's what Indy awesome. Convergence did on the uh, on the west side where they went in and again about the first year was we're going to listen and hear what this community was really could use and who can we any applause for people who've seen something at the Fonseca theater company yes. I saw I saw the perf a performance of Hooded, Hooded or, yeah. or how to be black for dummies it was one of the most wonderfully edgy funny but edgy and meaningful Performances I've seen actually yeah. in a long time. It's it's really neat. Uh, what are some? You talked about getting involved. Are there other ways you would encourage people to to get involved? You know, uh, through some of the CICF related work. But I'm curious from our other folks up here, what can people do besides 
be an audience member, which is a wonderful thing. Man, spread the word. Um, uh, ex- especially, I know a lot of my, God, how do I put this? The people need to see shows. They do. And it's not the normal group. It's not the everyday theater goer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people need to support, to support the arts. There is a lot of good arts in Indiana, a lot of, like you said, a lot of great arts that if you see it anywhere else, you'll be paying all this amount of money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks in Indiana don't have that kind of budget to put on anything big, but it's still focused on the art, and it's so good and worth seeing that uh, that's what I would say, support. Support these people, let them know that what they're doing is, is real and needed, and we need more of it. Mm-hmm. We do free play readings at Indie Reads Books the third Monday of every month. If you get a chance, stop by there for Indie Actors Playground. Part of why we started that was because we wanted people who may not be able to, you know, aren't thinking about spending their money at theaters to see the talent level of actors in town. So every month an actor picks a play they've always wanted to do and they read it in front of an audience. And we get a good crowd out there, but we want people to be able to see the talent level of these folks. And we always afterwards have them tell what they're working on, where they could be seen elsewhere. And we hope that helps people, you know, put it in top of mind because, you know, as somebody who's worked in the media, I know what's happening in the media right now. It's very hard to have that sort of centralized place to find out what's happening in the arts world. Uh, it used to be for music, you know, there were places you could go and find out everything that's going on, easy. Um, it used to be that there was more cross-pollination. You would see something in the sports section and you'd turn the page and there would be something on the arts and you were likely to sort of stumble on it easier. Now, because of what's going on in papers, what's going on online, people tend to look for what they're looking for. And it's harder to get the word to the uninitiated or the people who aren't necessarily thinking of going to see live music as an option uh, or going to see live theater as an option. So those are challenges. Um, Very specific thing, if you are on Twitter and you see something interesting, a like is great, a retweet is much better. share is better. So share on Facebook, retweet. Tell people about what you've seen, what's interested you, remind people that it is something you can do with your time besides watch Netflix. I think so. I think that's exactly right. I was going to use. I mean, I I watch a little bit of Netflix myself, but you know, um, I don't watch a lot. I'm not saying it, don't watch it. No, 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 no. There's great. There's incredible. There's like that's the one of the challenges. There's probably a hundred great television shows on TV right now. Right. It's an incredible renaissance. But has your life really ever been changed by watching a show uh, on Netflix? I mean, it's you're entertained. You're you know you're. I don't know, bird box, pretty. Yeah, really? yeah. You're afraid to go out now, right? <laughs> So, anyway, but I was just going to say, compared to that, and I, and I kind of my my job forces me to do this, but I, and I, I and I could be more thoughtful about it. But this idea of like, okay, in twenty nineteen, you have twelve months. Could you do something like this? This is, I mean, if you've never been this, I've never been to this before. I want to start coming to this. I think this is going to be, you know, and I'm sorry I missed some of the past ones. But could you look and say, okay, every month, one of the 30 days, I'm going to go do something that I've never done before. Whether it's go to the opera, whether it's go to a neighborhood celebration in Riverside neighborhood. And I'm going to, when I go, I'm going to put myself out there and talk to people I've never met. I don't know about you, when I traveled uh, internet, when I traveled to other cities or internationally, the most memorable thing for me is if I actually have an interesting conversation with someone from around the world that I've never met or someone that's, that's their home and I'm visiting. 
Here, though, you can almost as be as good as just you go to a place, you go to Riverside, and it's like I have a conversation with someone I've never met from a neighborhood that I don't know very well. And I went to a neighborhood festival. And by the way, I paid $10 to go. That $10, that's meaningful. The $15 you paid today to see this, that's meaningful. I mean, people get super excited when they're doing an event and people actually show up and pay. And it's like, oh, you're not even from this neighborhood? They get inspired right. by your presence. Right. Active food tickets are how much? Only 10. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> only yeah. $10. And do you know the cost for the uh, opening event? It's $12 right now. Right. Doors 15. We only have 100 tickets available. It's a small little venue. But mm. that's the thing. It's something I worry about is getting people there. Yeah. You know, it's really hard. Right. But, you know, someone said to me, people need to pay that because you're worth that. You're you worth are. it. You are. And Absolutely. I said, well, thank you. That seems like a note to uh, to finish up at least the chatting portion, but we would like to hear some more music. So uh, please welcome back to the microphone, Megan. See the light. 
Wow. Megan Christine Martin, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank Megan and my co-host Daniel Martin, guest Brian Payne, thanks to Patrick Chastain, our producer, sound guy Miles Hall, and the staff here at The Aristocrat on a, of course, I like to end with some personal thanks for a wide variety of reasons going out to Sid and Marty Croft, to Carolyn Ellis, the former star of the Bugaloos, who is now selling real estate in Spain. A shout out to Corey Shouten and Mike Demersion and Karen Irwin for their hospitality Thank whenever you. I'm in New York. Thanks to baby Ezra and to former baby Maxwell and to my new son-in-law, Stephen. Thanks to the former residents of Centralia, Pennsylvania. May they do well. And the former and current retailers of Pacific Avenue in Wildwood. Thanks to Laura Nero, Laura Dern, Laura Petrie, and Laura Linney. And thanks to every one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's doctors. Let's get together again soon. Thank you for coming out to Lou Harry Gets Real. Until then, keep your hearts and your minds open. Good night. Good night. Woo!